What's happening, hardscapers? This is episode 203 of the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And on today's episode, we're joined by Andrew Veer. He is a hardscape consultant in the industry speaker. And I actually saw that he was talking about hardscape maintenance for businesses. So I wanted to invite him on the show to talk about this topic as it's something that I've had on my mind for quite some time now, trying to figure out how hardscape maintenance can play into my business long-term. So that is definitely a main topic of today's episode along with Andrew's long background in the industry. But before we get into today's episode, I wanna say thank you to our sponsors, GPS Track It. If you need GPS tracking for your vehicles or equipment, reach out to GPS GPS track it or go to gpstrackit.com slash how to hardscape as well as our sponsor cycle cpa if you need bookkeeping accounting cfo services reach out to cycle cpa at cyclecpa.com let them know how to hardscape sent you for 200 off their services there and we'll be talking more about them too later in today's episode but for now let's get into today's episode with andrew veer Today, we're joined by Andrew Veer. He is a speaker and consultant for the hardscape industry, and he's been in the industry for quite some time. So we're ready to pick his brain on that, as well as you can find him at andrewveer.com. That's V-E-A-R. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here. Hey, thank you. Good morning. Andrew, let's get started to get to know a little bit more about you, yourself, your beginnings in the industry, what brought you to where you are today. Uh, A little bit of context there for our audience. Um, well, actually, I'm uh, originally a bricklayer, a mason by trade, and uh, emigrated to America in my mid-20s and um, started my first paper company in 1989. Uh, we had a couple of partners then uh, in Pompano Beach, and uh, the market was very different then in the 80s um, to, to where we are now. And I uh, started my first office in Pompano, then opened one in Clearwater, then Destin, Florida, and then New Orleans. Um, so ended up selling that business uh, with my partner and uh, got a job as a, a general manager for a paper company, uh, actually in Las Vegas, um, due to my no-compete. So, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up out west. Very, very different markets from the East Coast. And uh, went from there and then eventually got into hardscape maintenance, which is... Uh, uh, you know, really a very under underperforming um, uh, uh, situation right now. We're very short of hardscape maintenance. Absolutely. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you some questions about uh, your time in the industry there, uh, beginning mm-hmm. with uh, selling a business back mm-hmm. then. What what was that kind of experience like in terms of you've you've owned and operated this business, like you said, I think uh, with your partner there. What was it like on the other side of that sale? and mm-hmm. finding sort of like a, a purpose after that or where you're going after that essentially okay so um basically who buys a construction business it's really not it, to me it was the, one of the easiest things to set up is is a construction business and I've, I've set up several several companies since then as well but um the key is to make your business saleable and that generally is residual income so if you have a business uh, that's just sub or just installing pavers, you're really only as good as your last 30 days, right? What were your sales the last 30 days? Because that's going to determine how it runs. But once you start getting uh, residual income, so for instance, from hardscape maintenance um, to where you now have maintain maintenance with your customers, just like if you were the person that installed the sod, 
hopefully you're going to be the one that does the maintenance on that on that backyard or front yard or house. But if you don't, um, you know, you're, you're giving away a, a lot of revenue and you're giving away residual income, which is what makes a business valuable. Yeah. So that was really in the, the, I asked the people when they bought, I said, why did you buy this business, my business? Why did you buy it? They said, because you had so many, so much residual income from people that wanted you to come back and maintain the project. Because it's, you know, what we do is a high end, high end number and people want to maintain their papers just like they want to maintain the rest of the grounds. Very much overlooked. I think, in the industry. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. And it was it like residual income in terms of you are servicing clients and they see on your books that that client is a repeating customer or is that residual income like you sign them up on some sort of recurring revenue plan where they paid you mm -hmm. monthly, yearly, whatever that might be for you to actually maintain that space? Yeah, well, really, um, for, for us, the way my system was, was that we, you know, we tried to actually, you know, even when we sold the project, we would be selling maintenance. Hey, we will be here to take care of your project for whatever you need. So many times we do a, a driveway or a patio and you basically just want to lose that client. Like you never talk to them again. You never speak to them again. And and that's that's a huge mistake in our industry. We, we used to sell pavers as being maintenance free, but all pavements need maintenance. It doesn't matter what type of pavement it is. It, it needs maintaining. Permeable pavements, especially, need need maintaining. Right. So I just had a different mindset that that repairs and maintenance should be part of of any hardscape business. Um, buy houses they have problems with driveways it needs maintaining they may not even know who put the project in you know and you get that adage where people say i don't go on other people's work okay well that's insane there'd be no mechanics in the industry if someone said well i didn't sell you that car and the other challenge is too is, is if you buy a seventy thousand dollar pickup truck and you take it back to the dealership for the, for the first oil change and they say, whoa, sorry, we just sell the cars here. We don't maintain them. It's insane, right? So you sell someone a $60,000, $80,000 project, but you don't have a maintenance division or a service department to take care of that customer that you should never let go, right? Someone that spent eighty grand with you, you should never let them out of your sight. Right? So that's, that's my personal opinion on that. That's, yeah, that's excellent. And um, yeah, I like the idea of, especially if you paid money to obtain that client in terms of like dollars spent in ads uh, to be able to keep them on to improve that lifetime value of that client's much better for your business. And how did you go about selling them on that maintenance? Because I uh, one thing that I've struggled with in kind of creating this maintenance type business is a lot of clients see pavers as like a, a longer term solution as for a pavement uh you know solution for their house how do you sell them on maintenance on top of that added cost to pavers to say mm -hmm. yeah how do you how did you go about kind of talking them into uh maintenance for that so there's a couple of things that, that we that we used to do um one of them was that um if to come out and maintain the project um, we would extend the warranty Okay, so if we, we initially in those days, I mean, warranties are so long right now. It's, uh, you know, my children's children will still be maintaining some of these checks, right? But um, 
the key was that like, if we can come out and, and clean your your uh, drive, we just clean it, maybe even seal it uh, one time, we'll give it another five-year warranty if we're able to come out and inspect the project and take a look at it. And, and I actually got the idea from that from a roofing company I used to work with when I first came to America was the renewable warranties as well. With that. But it gets you back in front of the customer. It keeps you in their mind, even when that comes to referrals or my next door neighbor. And, oh yeah, you know, call, uh, you know, call Samington or call Andrew, and um, you know, get you back in front of your customer. Just marketing and, and and getting the initial job. That's where all your investment is, right? And then your return on your investment comes on each subsequent visit you get to go to someone's house, maybe accessories or paper lights or even if it's not sealing, right? The, the other way we would sell it is if I left the car in the driveway for five years, what would it look if you never washed it and you never cleaned it? What would be on top of it? What would be the surface that you would see? Because that's exactly what's in your pavers. And pavers are not poured concrete. They're, you know, they do need brightening and refreshing and and looking good which we can do right um just like you can a car if you if you clean it and take care of it and the surface it looks new for many many years and i think the other thing too is people forget at least a 50-year pavement right if you install the pavers with icpi guidelines for instance um you're building a 50-year pavement no problem at all Um, but you know contractors basically take a system and then shortcut it. And so every time you take a shortcut, it's like adding water to concrete. You can exponentially weaken it. So you know, build it right, build a 50-year pavement and, and keep it a customer. That's really, that should be the way to do it. So then when you uh, would present a proposal to a potential client, would you include like your base warranty and then include another package where if you paid this much, this would be your extended warranty that you would get based on us maintaining the space? Or how would you go about creating that maintenance inside of that package? Well, in construction, right, we have good clients. And then we have clients that we genuinely absolutely don't want to see ever again, right? There's no, there's, there's got to be 10% of the people where, you know, you, you pull, pull off the job site and then you're just licking your wounds, thanking whoever that you made it through another project and let's get started on the next one and get that behind you and set fire to the file. Right. Um, I agree. There's definitely some people out there that you might not want to do business with in the future. So I leave that choice up to us. Right? So, uh, you know, maintaining your sanity in this industry is uh, job one. And we all have problem clients from time to time. And, uh, yeah, so we didn't put that in, but every job that we did sell, we put as an option, for instance, on the contract, what it would cost to use polymeric sand and what it would cost to additionally seal the project after it's finished, right? Um, especially with sealer. So that would always be a separate item. Um, once we've collected the money on the first go, don't put sealer in there included with the project because if the weather is bad for the next three weeks that's holding up a big completion check which you don't want so what we would do is um you know when we were finishing you know for instance mrs winkelstein's driveway and uh the guys are hosing it off finishing it wow the color looks great well 
Uh, and then the foreman would say, if, you, if you'd like it to look like this, we have a line item that you can okay and send back into the office and they'll get you on the schedule. You get the job completed and paid first. It's usually a good idea. So yeah, sometimes it's at, at the end of the completion of the project, you would get the, you know, the first round of a maybe a ceiling or maybe they want polymeric sand. But if you don't offer it to people, they won't get it. So, uh, you know, there's no point in keeping stuff like that secret as well. You know, you have to know, again, you have the, if you have the world's best mousetrap, but no one knows about it, it doesn't make any difference, does it? So, um, that, that, again, let people know what you have, all of your services at the time. So successful. I like the idea of like the ceiling is kind of just an add on because you want to get paid for the work that's already done and not run into that weather. And my next question, you, you kind of went into it. It was uh, what if you did sign up maintenance with a bad customer that you don't want to see again? Because that's a that's definitely a crucial one there. Um, was this something that you toyed with implementing a uh, recurring uh draw on a customer in terms of a monthly mm -hmm. price uh or was this something that you just kept them in mind and reached out to them when it was time to reseal or whether you wanted to see whether uh they needed resanding or anything like that well there's a couple of things with that is you have to be careful of the legality of that so in in some cases um if you offer a maintenance program that is prepaid uh there's at the time, there were, there were some, some laws in Florida, I think, and uh, we took some legal on it that that wasn't a good route to go down. But it is a good route, for instance, to make sure that you're staying in touch or that you've allocated a salesperson for that project uh, with that. And, and then, you know, you have a file cabinet full of gold. All of your old customers you haven't reached out to in the last five or ten years or two years or three years, you should have someone going through that file cabinet, you know, calling them up, hey, Mrs. Winkelstein, how have you been? Uh, we did your driveway. Oh, you're still in business? And even from that initial re-phone call or reacquaintance with your company, um, yeah, you know what? We, we did our patio and we're looking at doing our driveway. We're so glad you called. I can't tell you how many people responded, we're so glad you called us, right? Because that's one of the hardest things in sales as well is, you know, no, thank you. I don't want to hear from you. But it's amazing how people that you've done business with want to do business with you again. You just have to give them the opportunity. So, um, and I think we miss out on that as contractors a little bit is, is giving people the opportunity to continue to do business with us instead of it being just a one-time sale. I want to interrupt this episode to talk to you about GPS Track It. When it comes to running a landscaping business, the question isn't what do you do, but what don't you do? If it's not a customer that needs your attention, it's one of your drivers or one of your vehicles. But you already know that GPS Track It exists to help you know more than what you already know, like the most efficient routes to maximize your service potential, like whether or not your vehicles and crews are where they're supposed to be like how to save unnecessary fuel costs and other costs. And we're going to be covering the benefits of GPS tracking in the future on this podcast. So we're going to continue with the benefits of GPS tracking, but we'll let our fleet advisors give you the full picture. Call 866-693-1291 
or go to gpstrackit.com slash how to hardscape. Once again, that's 866-693-1291 or go to gpstrackit.com slash how to hardscape. Link will be in the show notes. When you are um, in front of those clients and you reach out to them, uh, to see if they want maintenance. How often would they say, oh, I actually uh, want you to do this uh, for me, quote this project for me. Did that mm-hmm. kind of come up time and time again? Was that a recurring theme? Very much. And it depends. And again, if you if the sales are slow, you know, when we went through the first uh, downturn, um, basically that file cabinet is what might keep you in business, right? It's calling your, your existing clients. I'll tell you the other thing too is if you don't reach out to them and call them, you will get zero response because you haven't given them the opportunity to rebuy from you again, right? They're just stuck in a file cabinet waiting for someone else to come by and take care of them because guess what? The house might have sold. I under, you know, I understand things like that and everything. But if you can't reach someone, you know, that's the people to get a mailing list going because if it's a property that you've installed, you can't get hold of the uh, original client. That means someone else has moved in probably. And they need to know that you did the project and that you're happy to maintain it from for them. Right. So that's, I, I just think when you put so much effort into the sales and then as, a, as an industry, I think as, as contractors in general, not, not even just paper contractors or hardscapers, um, or contracting, we sort of let them slide. So I, I think that's important that uh, we need to, and, and now we have the tools, right? We have some fantastic tools that, you know, for, for record storage and calling people and good CRM, you know, getting yourself a, a good CRM tool together um, really helps your business. When you went to sell your business, that must have been difficult just as a business owner, uh, moving on from something that you've grown or was that a fairly easy transition that you knew what you were going to do next as a business owner? How was that kind of transition? Mm, let me think. It's probably one of the most exciting times of my life because, you know, when you're in a business, we, at the time we had three three locations running, I think. And um, sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees. I, we actually listed it and then about six months earlier and then forgot about it. And then 9-11 happened, and 9-11 was a financial nightmare. Everybody was saying, oh, I'm just tied up in New York. We can't pay you right now. Um, but you still have to make payroll, right? And payroll was, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars a week, right? And no one's paid you for three weeks at this point. It was getting pretty nerve-wracking. And uh, I got a call from the business broker who incidentally um, – completely forgotten about it. I didn't know who it was on the phone. He goes, hey, we've got a bite. I'm like, who are you? I'm your business broker. Oh, he goes, make sure everyone's out in the office by seven o'clock tonight. So went home, got changed, put on a clean shirt and um, met with the prospective buyers for the first time. And it was, it was a, a, a it, the thing is, is that it seems inconceivable sometimes that someone's actually going to buy your business i just feel like it's just how you're making money and and um and and i will say you know um my partner uh, she was a, a cpa my ex-wife and so, um you know the books were set up really good uh, um, so it was good it was easy for the due diligence folks when they 
came in were very clandestine and everything like that. There was that process, the due diligence process. Um, it, it was pretty easy for them to see that we weren't fudging any numbers or anything like that, that it was a genuine, we were actually making a profit in the construction industry. What a concept. Um, so it went really well, but at the, at the same time, I could pinch myself like, is this really happening? And, um, you know, when you're at the closing table and then the day after you realize, wow, I'm not going to the office today. It was uh, very surreal. Yeah. At the time of the sale, how hands-on were you in the business? What was your role like day-to-day mm-hmm. that you were doing? Well, we were running three locations at that time. Um, so that was uh, Clearwater, Destin and New Orleans. So I was going between all three businesses, being general managers for each office. And um, so I was running the group, if, if you like. And um, really the way that the way that the businesses run in Florida and, and other places, and, and it varies from state to state, there's a lot of subcontracting going on, just like any construction company, whether you're hiring subcontract carpenters or concrete guys. I mean, the, the industry was, was very much in the subcontract. In other states, that's actually illegal to do. California is mostly subcontract crews. Nevada, you can't have any subcontract crews. Really. So it was it was busy. I mean, maintaining all three offices. So I was out of town a fair bit, you know, making sure. But we were doing mechanical installation at that point as well. So we were doing uh, port projects, uh, um, you know, large, pretty large jobs, you know, over, you know, 100, 180, 200,000, 300,000 feet square foot projects. So the commercial jobs, you know, once you get them set up, sort of set and forget it sort of thing. Uh, as long as your supply chain is good, labor's good, it, you know, those jobs are fairly easy. But yeah, we were doing residential and commercial and everything, federal projects. So we had, uh, so yeah, everything was going. That's all I can say. It was busy. Absolutely. And uh, with that, I want to ask you about labor. How hard was it to find labor back then? Does the trend mm-hmm. still continue to this day that it's it's a difficult find? And especially for like a paver maintenance lift and relay division, that would be very mm-hmm. labor intensive. Yeah. So uh, we had set up a um, and, and how I recommend that, you know, even in my uh, when I did the, the webinar, how to uh, get profits from a hardscape business. But um, the key is to have a separate division, right? The, you, the guys that are installing pavers, you necessarily don't need them messing around with detail work, right? It's a bit like hiring a good salesperson, right? Some guys are great out there, but they're not so good at details. So hire someone to take care of the details. Right? Get that person doing what they can do best, which is selling, get them out there selling. If it's Installing pavers, keep them as efficiently as you can installing pavers. But hardscape maintenance requires another level of detail. If there's a small amount of polymeric sand piled up in the corner, that means someone gets the shot back out or, you know, a little dust brush. I mean, the normal things that maybe the, the crews don't, are, you know, are just not focused on. So I actually ended up hiring uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Clearwater, who was a painter and waterproofer. Right? So he knew how to use an airless sprayer. He knew about coatings, very detail orientated. And I had him start, uh, you know, get going with the with that division. And at the time, labor wasn't an issue. You know, in the in the late 80s and 90s, 
It was really getting the work that was issued, not the labor. Okay. I think that's a complete reverse now. You need to get the, make sure you've got the labor because work is still fairly prevalent, prevalent out there. Um, but labor is a challenge right now. You know, we're, and with ICPI, you know, have major, um, really trying to push forward on, on, uh, you know, workplace development, keeping people, getting younger people into our industry, uh, is difficult, right? So that's, one of the challenges today is, is, is labor. Any, any contractor of our industry or anyone, it's, it's labor issues. Supply chain, I think we burst through that, but, but labor today is still hard. When looking back, uh, you mentioned the work was harder to come by in comparison to today. Is that because pavers hadn't really established a foothold in like the residential commercial scene as opposed to other pavement solutions? Mm hmm. I think uh, I can I can quote uh, an icon in our industry, Mr. Ed Fioroni, and he had a uh, a really good idea on how our industry works. So when the pricing of a let's just say I'll, I'll throw out square foot pricing, but, um, if the pricing of a a particular thousand square foot driveway is thirty thousand dollars, right? Okay, in one part of the country. But at some point with volume comes an increase in efficiencies. Maybe the labor is more efficient. Maybe they're faster. They're more proficient at it. Maybe it's the pricing of the, of the pavers. But if, if, the, if the price comes down to a level where people look at that and go, Hmm, let's see that thousand square foot driveway isn't 30,000 anymore. It's only 10,000. Right. Okay. That becomes a lot more saleable to a builder, to a contractor. So again, when builders, when home builders start coming on board, when track homes are uh, becoming pavers so that every house in the subdivision is pavers, okay, that pricing level comes down, but the volumes go up because the pricings come down from being a, a bespoke custom, you know, thousand square foot project of 30 grand in the West <laughs> to 10 bucks a square foot in the east, right? Which, you know, again, I, I hate throwing pricing out there because every project's different, but at homes, the projects are fairly stable. You know, there's a difference between house to house. Um, you know, the track home prices in Florida are under five bucks a foot. So when you start reaching those type of numbers, the volumes increase, the price comes down, you reach a really good level where then what happens is the manufacturers start determining the pricing because of, of what their capacities are. So out in the West, we, you know, we're really at capacity with all the manufacturers out West, but um, there's so many more machines in Florida and the East and, uh, and everything. It's uh, a, a different market. So when you have, again, more manufacturers, more installation, more pavers, um, there's a shortage of manufacturers. It becomes a luxury item. I just want to take a break from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Cycle CPA. You may have a CRM or project management software in place, but what data are you using to ensure your estimating is accurate? Having a proper accounting setup and accurate bookkeeping done is key to understanding overhead expenses and other costs that must be recouped in your estimates. Cycle CPA is a remote bookkeeping and CFO firm that helps to connect the dots from the financial reports to the hardscape and landscape data needed in order to reach high profits. 
They provide landscape and hardscape industry benchmarking, job costing financials by service line, advisory meetings, and much more. Cycle CPA's team of accountants are specialized within the hardscape and landscape industry, and you can visit them at CycleCPA.com and for $200 off, mention the How to Hardscape podcast. Now back to our episode. With uh, your transition to working for a paver manufacturer, is there anything that that kind of brought to light for you uh, from when you were a business owner on the other side of things? Was there anything that you learned that kind of shone a light on uh, any frustrations that you had as a business owner or anything that uh, any, any friction that you experienced as a business owner? I think when you're a contractor, and I, I can speak for myself, is, is the transition going from contracting to manufacturing, not just working for a, cor- a, you know, a large corporation or anything like that with rules and regulations and people above you. you know, one of the things of a contractor is we're used to making on-the-spot decisions. Right. So and there are subsequent actions and reactions from that. Whereas when you're in a, a larger corporate environment, sometimes your hands are tied behind your back a little bit. And even though you need to make a decision right away, you've got to go through the chain of command and it's got to go through three layers of approvals. And then it's got to be on a spreadsheet for the accountants, you know, in, either in another country or somewhere else to another state to look at. Um, you know, buying a pencil sharpener becomes hard work sometimes. So, um, so that was frustrating a little bit um, because I felt like some of the decisions would, would save money, but now you can't save money because it's taken so long for, for that to come around. Um, on the other hand, you, you, know, you can't have give someone an open checkbook. I, I completely understand that. I think the other thing that I learned from manufacturing in the manufacturing is give the manufacturers a break, okay? They're trying to make lumps of concrete to such a tight infinitesimal degree of accuracy for them just to meet ASTM 936 standards. And then sometimes you get a Monday morning paper, right? So calling up and screaming at the manufacturer isn't gonna get you anywhere, you know? Everybody gets a Monday morning paper at some point and you've just got to work through it. And that's what shows your maturity, I think, at some point is how you deal with your problems. We all get problems. Um, if you turn this into a free lunch and maybe a round of golf, or do you end up being ostracized by the supplier or the manufacturer because now you're, you know, you have a reputation as being, you know, a screamer and a crier. Okay. Nobody wants to do business with. So um, that's impact your business. I've seen it impact where leads go. When people call in screaming, like, okay, you're just not getting any more leads. We're not going to deal with you. Nobody will tell you, but you'll just notice the leads start dropping off. And, you know, and that's just how it works. But be nice, work through your problems. And um, the other, and the one final thing I'll say is um, when you're calling up your supplier or manufacturing saying, I've got to get another 10 cents to put off or I'm finished on this project or I need a nickel, I need a dime a square foot off or, or something, is that you're, you're asking the wrong person. Go down, down to the quarry where you're buying hundreds of tons of aggregates and sand and ask them for money off, right? And when you're buying it, don't say how much is it a ton. Figure out how much a year you're buying in rock and aggregates and sand, and then start negotiating. Look, I'm going to buy, I don't know, 300,000 tons of base, uh, you know, 57 rock. How much is it? 
how much is that versus how much is it a ton? You know, going with a real grown-up proposal with the people that you're buying, probably spending just as much money with, you know, if you put in six inches of base and an inch of sand or 10 inches of permeable base, okay, um, you're, you're spending as much there as you are on pavers, right? So negotiate where people have room, where someone hasn't spent $15 million or $20 million on a paver plant versus someone who's dug a hole in the ground. So there's a lot more movement with the people with the hole in the ground is the way I look at that. And you can get incredible discounts from the, from the quarry. Yeah, I, got, I have to ask you, uh, changes that you've seen in the industry from the time you entered to mm-hmm. what you've seen to today, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen? Uh, it could be related to anything, product, labor, uh, equipment, anything that kind of comes to mind for you. Well, products are fashionable. Right? There are products out there that we were installing in the 90s that you can't even find today. Um, some of the shapes, you know, Unidecor, some of those shapes, cobble block, cobblestone, some some manufacturers have uh, those molds mothballed somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but they're fashionable. It's it's architects are fashionable. Like, for instance, right now, plank pavers and, and, and large format pavers are pretty fashionable, but you uh, you know, in the 90s and even the early 2000s, they were just not even available. So, so, so fashion, just like anything else, is swerved by the manufacturers, just like the fashion industry determines fashion and clothing, right? I think our manufacturers also, you know, the mold, the guys that make the molds, right? they're the ones selling the molds to the manufacturers, and the manufacturers have to sell those to us, like, well. Oh, and then they're selling it to designers and imp- I, mean, I don't want to use the word influencer, that's not quite correct, but um, to, you know, um, cities and engineering departments and how wonderful these pavers are. And uh, you have to keep the industry alive with new shapes and colors and patterns. And I'm very glad that we're not installing the same pavers we were in the 90s because they were pretty boring. Um, we have some incredible stuff out there now, different multiple shapes and multiple shapes and it's fantastic and and then the other thing too is the mechanical industry i've seen the mechanical pavement industry really start ramping up i i would say in the early 2000s and it sort of seemed to peak a bit and then drop off and and a lot of that sometimes is when the manufacturers are busy they don't want to manufacture a mechanical install product that they're not going to make a lot of profit Right. So they want to they want to sell the Mrs. Winkelstein beautiful bespoke patio stone that they can get three times as much money for for the same amount of layers on that machine. Right. That machine is only going to put in so you know, you utilize so many layers per day. And if you can get money per layer versus you need to make, you know, four hundred thousand square feet of natural gray four by eight pavers, right? Which and making points on, um, sort of gets shoved to the back. So I've seen the manufacturers not promoting mechanical installations so much these, this last decade, just because they've been so busy, I think. And then my, my final question for you here is, uh, as a speaker, as a consultant, you've no doubt spoken to a lot of different contractors. Uh, these days, what are the common issues or questions that you get from contractors on an ongoing basis? I think uh, a lot of it is um, bringing on new labor, 
right? The acquisition of labor and then training, okay? Um, and how to, I think, you know, I, I, I did a couple of uh, um, consulting clients in the Pacific Northwest last year, and I saw some of the really, you know, one company specifically, I won't mention their name, they probably know who they are, but um, they have such a great company culture. And I, I think if you're, if you want to hire good people, right, have a good company culture. You know, um, it doesn't have to be everybody's, you know, falling down in pillows every day or anything like that and a soft landing, but it needs to be a place where somebody wants to come to work, where they're with a group of people that they want to be with versus, I don't know, someone playing video games. It's, um, and I think there's some genuine companies out there that, that do a really good job with that. And I think, the companies that cannot find labor and really struggle with labor uh, is because they have just a neutral balance on that. They, they they really don't have a place to work where people want to come to work, where they see themselves growing, where they see themselves being mentors within the organization right? and creating mentorship uh, within the organization. That's what brings on new people and, and new employees. And I, I think that the, yeah, labor is changing, right? It's uh, uh, it's becoming a place where you, you have to make a good workplace or no matter what field you're in, right? Doctor's office, a you know, the doctor's office is just chaos where people go home crying every day, right? It's, it's That's not a good scenario, but it's somewhere good to come to work where you're proud. I mean, we, we have a, a business that's fantastic. We create amazing projects that you can take your kids to look at in 10, 15, 20 years time. I, I'm, I'm guilty of that, right? Hey, look at these papers we did 30 years ago and the kids just don't want to know. But that's, that's our industry is that people, you know, it's, it's not something that somebody eats or consumes. It's something that's there pretty much forever. I still got projects 30 years old in Florida that, that still look amazing today. So I, I think if you can, Keep getting new people to come into the industry, it'll stay strong. And we need to focus on that more. And I do have one last question for you, Andrew, to close things out here. It's a big one too, so I'm sorry to throw this at you here. Uh, but I, I, I try to ask it to every business owner that has come on the podcast, and that is, what is one thing you know now that you wish you knew from the very beginning? And this could be personal related, this can be business related. Feel free to take it wherever you want to go. But what is that one thing that you know now you wish you knew from the very beginning? I think um, with ICPI, we developed a, a commercial sales class. And I think um, taking a business from residential into commercial, there's a lot of growing pains with that. Uh, it's one, you know, when you keep your business just solely residential, you deal with Mrs. Winkelstein, you finish the job, you put out your hand, you collect your check, okay, move on to the next project. And then with, you know, commercial, um, projects is, you know, you're going to work for 30, maybe 60 days without getting paid. And you have to, you know, making, making sure all the paperwork's correct. Um, I, I think I, I, I would have really appreciated doing the ICPI commercial class before I, I, I did that. And, and, you know, we, at the time, I think I was chair of the education committee for ICPI and we, I knew that there was an importance to this because, you know, bringing people through going from residential to commercial is it's like getting dragged through a hedge backwards, right? It's, it's difficult. It's, it, there's a lot more paperwork. There's a lot more things to do. 
And instead of dealing with one person, you're dealing with every other subcontractor on the site, people walking on your stuff, people disrespect, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. So I think, I think I would have, um, I should have educated myself better on that before leaping into the commercial side of the industry, but you get through it. It's, it's amazing what you can live through, but I will say that was, that was a very hard transition. Andrew, excellent interview. Thank you so much for your time today. Where can our audience go to find out more about you? Uh, wherever you want to send them to, uh, where would that be? Um, yeah, I, I have a, a basic website, andrewveer.com. Uh, um, or you can email me at andrew at andrewveer.com. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. Once again, thank you to our sponsors, Cycle CPA. If you need bookkeeping, accounting, CFO services, reach out to Cycle CPA at cyclecpa.com. Let them know how to hardscape sent you for $200 off their services there. And as well as GPS track it. If you need GPS tracking for your work vehicles, equipment, go to GPS track slash how to hardscape. And we look forward to meeting with you next week on the how to hardscape podcast.